This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Charles Osgood is off today. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. From Cleveland and the Republicans, we turn this morning to Philadelphia and the Democrats, and to the possibility that, for the first time in our history, the President of the United States could be a woman, which leads, in turn, to the possibility that America will need to get accustomed to something completely different, a first gentleman at the White House. Faith Saley will report our cover story. Well, it's been a deep impression time. Introducing Dan Mulhern, husband of Jennifer Granholm, former governor of Michigan. He can tell you all about the job of first gentleman. You don't make the decisions. Your wife makes the decisions. You're, you're a coach, you're a consultant, you're a supporter, you're a cheerleader, you're an encourager. Uh, but, but keep that clear in your mind. She's the boss. America's first gentleman. Ahead on Sunday morning. Then it's on to the Philadelphia story, the story of the city beyond the Democrats' convention hall. Mo Rocca is our guide. Philadelphia, where the Liberty Bell and the Rocky statue get equal billing. Wonderful. Once upon a time, it was the nation's capital. But now... It has a chip on its shoulder. About what? The rest of the world. 
We'll find out how to properly eat the local delicacy. You have to lean forward at all times. It's actually called a Philadelphia lean. And how about the day they ran Santa Claus out of town? Most people in Philadelphia would just say that Santa deserved it. Later on Sunday morning. Donald Trump was the story in Cleveland this past week. And this morning, we hear from the Republican presidential nominee as he talks to our senior contributor, Ted Koppel. I love the media. Not really. Donald Trump's relationship with the press has been anything but a love fest. You've had your share of misstatements over the past few months. Well, I think that I'm an honest person. I feel I'm an honest person. And I don't mind being criticized at all by the media, but I do want them to be straight about it. We Donald Trump and the media and getting his message across now that the convention is over, ahead on Sunday morning. The summer screen offers plenty of alternatives to convention viewing, featuring, among other things, a new role for a star with plenty of memorable roles to her credit. Not that she's taking anything for granted, as she'll be telling our Tracy Smith. I'm not going to break in. I'm... From private eye <laughs> to princess. This is awkward. <laughs> Kristen Bell always makes it look easy, but don't let the looks fool you. Have there been bumps? Oh, God, yeah. And it may end at any moment. Might end before this interview is over. And I just, what a wonderful ride it was. What Help. are you vent about? Everything. Oh my God. The fantastically real Kristen Bell ahead this Sunday morning. Anthony Mason introduces us to some artists dressing up the streets of Philadelphia. With David Pogue, we'll watch pioneers winging it around the world in a plane powered by the sun's rays. We'll mark the passing of legendary director Gary Marshall. Say so long to the VCR and more. How are you there? Good to see you. How are you? Too. Good. I didn't realize. Ahead, what it takes to be a first gentleman. And later, the basic order is whiz, wit, no sauce. Philadelphia cheesesteak etiquette from Moraka. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. We don't hear very much about the first gentlemen, certainly not as much as we hear about our first ladies. But come November, that could change. Our Sunday morning cover story is from Faith Saley. Good morning. Meet Andy Moffat. Husband. A working father. Slow down, buddy. And gardener-in-chief. So the other day I was out there, you know, cutting the hedges and cleaning, and some guy came by and he said, hey, Hey, does the governor live here? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, if you see her, tell her she's doing a great job. And, so... <laughs> and it's pretty easy for Andy Moffat to get an audience with the governor of Rhode Island. You look beautiful. He's married to her. Today I'm kicking off my campaign. Gina Raimondo is the first female governor of the state, which makes her husband the first what? I do remember being at an event where uh, I, was, I was a group of seniors. The man who was introducing me sort of paused. He said, this is Andy, he's the, uh, what, what's your title again? And he looked back at me and I explained first gentleman and all the older men and all the women there all laughed and kind of giggled. How are you, Mayor? Good to see you. Nice How to are see you? you too, good. Andy Moffat is Rhode Island's first, first gentleman. 
And while that title may not exactly roll off the tongue, you might want to get used to it. Hello, I'm Mike Haley, first gentleman of South Carolina. From Michael Haley in South Carolina to Dan Little of Oregon, there are now six, count them, six first gentlemen in the United States. And while we don't know if the title of the cookbook by Wade Christensen, the first gentleman of Oklahoma, sums up his take on the job, Dan Mulhern, former first gentleman of Michigan, says the role reversal can be humbling. His wife, Jennifer Granholm, served two terms as governor. Did it change your marriage? Oh, sure, yeah. How? For a man to see your wife in the position of power and prominence all the time, you have to think about how to manage yourself and how to manage your ego and how to play roles that are unusual roles. In fact, Mulhern, a lawyer and teacher at UC Berkeley, says he'd actually considered running for office himself. But it was during his wife's first campaign for attorney general that his role began to change. She gave a big speech at the convention, 3,000 people packed in, and she was amazing. And I was holding my son, and this horrific smell starts wafting up to me from his backside. And so I was on the floor in a bathroom stall with my son on a plastic diaper pad changing him. And I was just fussing like crazy with myself. I can't believe I'm here. Why am I here? I, I can't believe I'm doing this now. During his wife's first term, Mulhern sought advice from who else? A former first lady, Paula Blanchard of Michigan. I said to her, how did you decide what role you would play? And she said, your primary role is emotional. And what did that mean? Well, it, it meant a lot of things. Number one, it meant I was the lead in the family. And at that time, our children were eight, seven, and one. You know, you, you think of yourself as smart. You think of yourself as up on the ideas. You th may think you have talents. But um, that's, that's not where you're supposed to be. The duties of the first spouse have never been one size fits all. It's a very amorphous job, a, a, a job without a definition. Lisa Kathleen Grady is a curator of the First Lady's exhibit at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. It all depends on what we expect of women and what we expect of First Ladies at that time. Dolly Madison established the White House as a backdrop for social diplomacy. She also, you may recall, really knew how to pack up and move in a hurry. Dolly Madison, when the White House was burned by the British in 1814, managed to save it. A century and a half later, Jacqueline Kennedy reigned domestic, famously restoring her new home. Columbia Island is a gift of nature. Lady Bird Johnson was the first to enter the job with an announced slate of programs, including highway beautification. Our more recent first ladies have taken on issues like health care, literacy, and obesity. How much of what we expect of first ladies and of a first gentleman has to do with our expectations of gender? I think almost all of it has to do with our expectations of gender. I don't think that people are necessarily going to expect a first gentleman to do the Christmas decoration tour. But, but, but we just don't we know. Should. Maybe we should. Maybe, Maybe we should. 
take one of Rhode Island First Gentleman Andy Moffitt's first tasks. You actually held a tea for former First Ladies I did. of Rhode Island. I realize I have a platform as First Gentleman, and I, uh, you know, I have a, a real license, and I have an intention to do something with it to, to make an impact on our state. And they were very encouraging in that way. These days, while his wife's at the state house. We have about 50 kids out here today That's great. that are going to be planting. Moffitt is focusing on his causes, food and hunger-related issues. That is, when he's not working for a management consulting firm. Which brings us to this guy, who may soon find himself with a wife who's president. She is the best I've ever known. And a case of serious role reversal. You don't make the decisions. Your wife makes the decisions. You're, you're a coach, you're a consultant, you're a supporter, you're a cheerleader, you're an encourager. Uh, but, but keep that clear in your mind. She's the boss. Still, to hear Dan Mulhern tell it, there's nothing second-rate about being first gentleman. If you had to assign adjectives, you know, my years as first gentleman were, what, what, what would you say? Extraordinary, you know, magical... Um, really confusing, disempowering, humbling, uh, uplifting, um, very sweet, very sweet, lots of pride at my wife, extraordinary feelings of pride for my wife. off to Gibraltar next. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, July 24th, 1704, 312 years ago today, the day Britain and its Dutch allies seized Gibraltar from Spain. Located at Europe's southern tip, Gibraltar and its towering rock dominate the narrow strait between the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. Granted sovereignty by the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713, Britain transformed Gibraltar into a fortress and naval base. Unreconciled to Gibraltar's loss, Spain imposed a land blockade of the tiny territory in 1969, which lasted until 1985. At midnight in Gibraltar, a border guard opened rusty green gates that for 15 years divided the tiny peninsula from Spain. Rich in history, Gibraltar is a prime tourist destination, famous for its indigenous monkeys, and of course, for its landmark rock, nearly 1,400 feet high. Gibraltar looms large in our popular culture as well. It rates a lyric in the Gershwin tune, Our Love is Here to Stay. Gibraltar may tumble. And it graced the opening of the CBS News series, The 20th Century, back in the 1950s and 60s. It was in Gibraltar that Beatle John Lennon wed Yoko Ono in 1969. Nations and borders may come and go, but barring a cataclysm, it's very clear the Rock of Gibraltar is here. to get into the nooks and crannies of the state. Coming up, Philadelphia. 
You have to lean over. Food for thought. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The Philadelphia story begins at the birth of our republic and continues on to this week's Democratic National Convention and, of course, a popular Hollywood movie along the way. With Mo Rocca, let's explore. Everyone in Philadelphia and everyone who visits Philadelphia wants their picture with Rocky. You couldn't ask for a more enthusiastic civic booster than Ed Rendell. He was the mayor of this city and then the governor of the state. Oh, it's my pleasure. Rendell brought us to one of Philadelphia's major tourist draws, the Rocky statue at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Wonderful. Here goes a guy with no socks prancing up. Do the steps help keep Philadelphians slim and trim? No, <laughs> because it's mostly people from out of town who run the steps. And from the top of those steps, you can look over George Washington's shoulder to where the country was born. The revolution was a revolution of ideas. Mm -hmm. Those ideas were formulated and debated here. Visitors swarmed the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall, where both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were signed. Pennsylvania was the biggest delegation. You can see there are seven of them. And at the National Constitution Center, they get up close and personal with the founding fathers. Ben Franklin is extremely popular. We used to have the famous Franklin glasses on, but the tourists kept touching the Franklin glasses so much that they broke the glasses. We tried, I think, three pair and finally gave up. You just gave him LASIK. But look, that's how often he gets touched compared to the other statues. It seems that everywhere you turn in Philadelphia, history is just around the corner. This is Elfort's Alley. It's the oldest continually inhabited street in America. And it's just one of Philadelphia's many distinctions. This city also has the country's first hospital, its first library, its first stock exchange, and its first art museum. There are plenty of places we could go for a cheesesteak. Oh, yeah. And you can't, it's hard to get a bad cheesesteak in Philadelphia. I live in this neighborhood, and this is my favorite. History, not to mention geography, has not always been kind to Philadelphia, which was the nation's capital from 1790 until 1800. I chewed the fat with Governor Rendell, who was actually born in New York City. You're a transplant, so what do you think you notice about Philadelphia that Philadelphians may not notice about themselves? The city has a little bit of an inferiority complex. In colonial times, we were the most sophisticated, most important city in the country. Right. Well, now we're 100 miles south of the financial capital of the world and 150 miles north of the political capital of the world. Right. So it makes Philadelphians a little defensive and, and to sort of feel a little inferior. So we associate all the founding fathers with Philadelphia, but... Most of them are from Philadelphia. Joe Queenan is an essayist and somewhat curmudgeonly native son. There's the Philly that's the cradle of American democracy, and then there's the Philly that has what Ed Rendell called an inferiority complex. I wouldn't so much call it as an inferiority complex as it has a chip on its shoulder. About what? The rest of the world. The rest of the world has a long history of laughing at the city. W.C. Fields reputedly said, I once spent a year in Philadelphia. I think it was on a Sunday. Yes, I'd like to see Paris before I die. Philadelphia will do. And then there are the long-suffering fans of the city's football team, the Eagles. 
The last time the Eagles won the championship was right here in this field. In 1960. Yeah. 1960. Okay. Last year, Eagles fans were named by Sports Illustrated as the most hated in the NFL. After all, they're the ones who, on a truly legendary day at Franklin Field, launched a snowball attack against Santa Claus. Governor, you were here that day in 1968. What happened? The Santa that the Eagles had hired got sick. So they had to look for a substitute Santa. And they went into the stands and saw this guy in a Santa suit. They asked him to do it. He wasn't a great Santa. And then they brought this poor substitute Santa out of him. And they pelted him. I think he got barely halfway around before he said, no moss. Joe, why do you think this story is so well known? Because people like any story that trashes Philadelphia. <laughs> and most people in Philadelphia would just say that Santa deserved it. Clearly, Philadelphia has its standards. The key to the cheesesteak is cheese whiz, because you want the cheese to get into the nooks and crannies of the state. Which brings us back to the cheesesteak and an epic misstep by John Kerry when he ran for president. John Kerry came in and ordered a cheesesteak with Swiss cheese. Unheard of. He would have been better skipping the cheesesteak entirely. There's a right way to eat it, too. I should point out that you are eating a cheesesteak wearing a very nice suit. It can be done, but you have to lean forward at all times. It's actually called a Philadelphia lean. Is it like a slouch, or is it a from no, the no, hips? No, you or... lean from the hips, you lean forward. Very important. It's actually kind of, it's probably good for your digestion a little bit too, right? Or... I don't know about that. Ed Rendell is not just an etiquette expert. As the chairman of the Democratic Convention's host committee, he's working to reclaim Philadelphia's glory. I came up with the slogan, let's make history again, alluding to the fact that history was made. The first convention in the United States was the Continental Congress. And I was alluding to the fact that we would probably nominate first woman candidate to be president. Let's make history again. And if it were Bernie, it would be the first Jewish president. No, actually, I was thinking of the first socialist president. Philadelphia is actually the Greek word for brotherly love, hence the traditional slogan, City of Brotherly Love. It was named in 1681 by its founder, William Penn, who still presides from atop City Hall. 335 years later, Philadelphia is still defining itself. I saw a sign, and it was an advertisement for Philadelphia, and it said, with love, from Philadelphia. That is so un-Philadelphia. They used to have a campaign, Philadelphia, the, the city, city that, that loves, loves you, back. you back. It's just not a lovable place. It's not a place that's warm. It's a place that, like, take it or leave it. And in fact, we would prefer that you leave it. Coming up, Courage is going up to that young man and apologizing for ruining his life. The art of forgiveness. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This artwork is just part of a larger piece called Sanctuary, a huge mural soon to take its place on the streets of Philadelphia. Paint the town could be the motto of the campaign that's brightened so many city walls while lifting so many people's spirits. Anthony Mason takes us on a walking tour. Philadelphia has an iconic art museum. But some of this city's most impressive artwork is out on the street, an outdoor art gallery that pays homage to the ordinary and to the epic. 
One of the latest to be unveiled features Pope Francis, who signed a panel on his visit to the city last year. How many murals have you done now? Well, we have created close to 4,000 murals since 1984. Are you running out of walls yet? No, <laughs> we have a giant waiting list of people who want work. This is a really big space here. I mean, how, it's, how it's, big it's, is this? Do it's you know? huge. It's, it's almost 200 feet long. Jane Golden, a Stanford-educated dynamo, created the Philadelphia Mural Arts Program. This takes how long to create, roughly? This was a year's worth of work. The most prolific of its kind in the world. What is that power that art has? Oh, it's great. <laughs> I could just jump up and down. It is to uplift, it's to inspire, it's to challenge, mm -hmm. it's to educate, it's to connect us. Golden was hired by the city in 1984 to lead a short-term anti-graffiti campaign. People were stopping every minute going, oh my God, this is incredible, we can't believe this. The first project, repainting the Spring Garden Street Bridge. No one was writing on it. That's what everyone expected, yeah. that the work we were doing back then would be completely vandalized. Philadelphia's mural arts program would grow from that. Golden became an evangelist for the transformative power of art. This mural is about addiction and recovery. It's 1,200 artists contributed to the mural on this methadone clinic, many of them patients. I'd make site visits here and people would say, Jane, I no longer feel like an addict, I feel like an artist. Someone from the neighborhood who felt like I cannot be near somebody here. Right. And suddenly it's humanizing because you're painting right next to someone who is very different from you, but are they really different, right? I mean, yeah. everybody has struggles. So it's not just about making pretty pictures and putting up on walls. That's right, as great as that is, there's something else going on and I saw that back in the day. The process of creating is as important as the creation itself. Each community helps determine a mural subject. An experienced artist then coordinates a diverse team of workers. Some might come from the mural arts after school program, like 16-year-old Alicia Goodwin Dancy, studying with the program since she was 10. I came out of my shell enough to take part of something awesome and amazing, and I hope it inspires someone else. He's so tall, like you. <laughs> Dewan Williams and his 11-year-old son first worked on this mural together when he was in Greaterford Prison for a drug offense, part of a program to connect inmates with their children. This mural represents the reunification of family. So through this program, we were able to see each other every week. Right. We were able to, uh, you know, bond on a deeper level. They was going to work, they got their homework. Dewan is now a coordinator for mural arts, leading recently released inmates on projects. So is Michael Whittington, who took mural arts classes when he was in prison. It's like you're locked in a cell, but at the same time, you know, you go in there, it's like you, you're free, you're somewhere else. Michael had done time for a shooting in 2003. He didn't pull the trigger, but he provided the gun that shot and paralyzed then 19-year-old Kevin Johnson. When he joined Mural Arts out of prison, Michael told Jane Golden he wanted to visit the victim of his crime to say he was sorry. I remember like it was yesterday. She took me up there to see uh, Kevin Johnson. You got there and you were in the car and you didn't want to get out. No. <laughs> so I said, there's a problem here because this car is not turning around. I said, Michael, I'm going to tell you what real courage is. Courage is getting out of this vehicle and going up to that young man and apologizing for ruining his life. 
Yeah. And that's what you're going to do right now. When you saw him getting out of the car, what were you thinking? Well, my son smiled. Janice Jackson is Kevin's mother. He smiled. And his first words, once he was able to speak, was, Mom, just forgive so we can live. Forgive so we can live. So that allowed you to find forgiveness? That allowed me to start. Before Kevin died of his injuries in 2006, he and Michael became friends. I felt as though I was right in my wrong. It's just a feeling that I can't explain. The mural was Michael's idea. That's Kevin's graduation picture. It depicts Kevin and his mom. But that's exactly how I hold my hand. And is called simply yeah. forgiveness. When you see it now, what do you see? I just see redemption. I, I, I see a lot. I see, I see forgiveness. I want people to you know, look at their mural and just realize like it's never too late to change. Mm -hmm. And forgiveness is powerful. And to this day, I still don't get why and how she forgave me for doing something like that. But she did, and that's a pretty powerful thing. Yeah. Forgiveness is just one of thousands of murals in Philadelphia. It's holding up a mirror to people and saying that your life counts. It's the autobiography of our city. We'll remember Gary Marshall next. It happened this past week, the loss of Hollywood's master of humor and romance. Writer and director Gary Marshall died Tuesday in Burbank, California, of complications from pneumonia following a stroke. A child of the Bronx, Marshall became a television comedy writer in the 1960s. Can two divorced men share an apartment without driving each other crazy? And had his first big hit in 1970 with the adaptation of Neil Simon's play, The Odd Couple. A succession of hit TV series followed. Happy Days with Ron Howard and Henry Winkler. Laverne and Shirley, with his sister Penny as one of the leads. I am Mark from Mark. Nanu, nanu. And Mark and Mindy, which launched an unknown Robin Williams into stardom. There were movies as well. Pretty Woman with Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. <laughs> the Princess Diaries with Julie Andrews and Anne Hathaway. Princesses never cross their legs in public. Why don't you just tuck one ankle behind the other and place the hands gracefully on the knees? And many others, all of them playing to his strength, as he told our Rita Braver back in 2010. The type of work I do is, uh, you know, it's called sentimental, it's called Pollyanna, whatever it's called. Uh, at least they call me. <laughs> Gary Marshall was 81. Still to come, flying high and flying high. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Donald Trump won the Republican nomination last week. 
at a one-of-a-kind convention after a one-of-a-kind campaign. We asked our senior contributor, Ted Koppel, to travel to Cleveland for the convention. His chat with Trump is ahead. But first, he reports on what he heard and saw. They were still popping balloons late into the night, but it's done. Donald Trump and the GOP are hitched. But as is the case with more than a few weddings, there were some skeptics. But the more the family elders tried to talk the kids out of it, you know, one of those he really isn't our kind of people conversations, the more the kids, the Trump supporters, dug their heels in. I've waited for Donald Trump to run for 20 years of my life. And to me, this is the greatest thing that's going to happen in America since Ronald Reagan. So the Bushes and the Romneys, the McCains and the Kasichs stayed home, even though Ohio is home for John Kasich. A full-throated Trump supporter who did come, former New York mayor Rudy Giuliani. Maybe we need somebody who's done nothing in politics, done a lot in other areas, and can get us to rethink our politics, because our politics right now is dysfunctional. Look, I said on the air very early, and I believe this, Trump is a neo-fascist. For more than 40 years now, the poster boy for what many Republicans dislike and mistrust about the liberal media has been Colonel Bernstein of Watergate fame. But neo-fascist? Really? In a, in a peculiarly American sense, a strong man who doesn't believe in democratic institutions or even understand them, who just thinks he can come in and will his way to get people and movements and countries into submission. Every Trump supporter out there sees that, that soundbite and, and says that SOB Carl yes. Bernstein, that's exactly that's what exactly, I would expect him to say. That is exactly right, but I'm also going to say the following. He has had an unerring sense of the grievances of the people of this country. Donald Trump joins us by phone. Mr. Trump, Donald Trump is here. Finally. Mr. Trump, good morning again. Good to have you here. Trump's detractors, of course, think the press has given him a free ride. They'll point to what the New York Times estimates at $2 billion worth of free media coverage. Positive coverage clearly helps Trump, but even negative coverage only seems to confirm the conviction among his supporters that their man can't get a fair shake. Jeff Greenfield has been writing about politics so for far, 50 years. There's been a lot of um, anger on the part of a whole lot of people about how much free media was given to Donald Trump. What has been so interesting is that when the media began to raise really tough questions that would have disqualified almost any other candidate, so far those challenges have not seemed to have any impact. Trump's had to contend with more than just liberal media. Maybe you saw this cover from the National Review. That's a conservative icon. They've been trashing Trump, as has the Weekly Standard and the Wall Street Journal. Conservative media. You'd have to consider the possibility that the more Donald Trump is rejected by party elders and reviled by commentators and columnists, the more passionately he's embraced by his supporters. I mean, look how many people tried to stop him getting a nomination because they didn't like uh, what he was going to be doing. Christopher Harvey was a member of the Texas delegation. He was going to be messing up what they've been used to for I don't know how long. So Donald Trump is the type of person that's going to go out there and fire this country up. Get this country passionate about being America again. 
Among all media in the United States, none has more clout than the New York Times. Adam Nagorny is the LA bureau chief for the paper. Andrew Rosenthal is a columnist. What is it about Donald Trump that makes those who support him so passionate in their love and, and yeah. admiration for him? I think it's because he expresses things that they've been afraid to say. There's some of their anger and their alienation and their disaffection from what's going on around them. And he's allowed them to be really enraged. And that's a very powerful thing. If he does alienate his, his true believers by being more presidential, and he can't appeal to the middle without being more presidential, is that a soluble problem? I mean, I think his gut is to go with the Smash Dishes campaign, the campaign that's gotten him where it is. I think he enjoys it. I think it's fun. I think it's gotten him the, whatever the percentages of voters that got him the nomination. It will not get him the general election. I can never remember a candidate who has so blatantly said stuff that's just not true. And as far as I can tell, paid no price for it. It doesn't seem to bother him at all, and it doesn't seem to bother some of his supporters. You understand that he says some things that are patently untrue, demonstrably untrue. I don't know that that's the case. There is, among many Trump supporters, a mindset similar to what movie and theater goers engage in, the willing suspension of disbelief. I watched when the World Trade Center came tumbling down. And I watched in Jersey City, New Jersey, where thousands and thousands of people were cheering as that building was coming down. Trump supporter David Jones has absolute confidence in that account. We live in an era in which if a kitten falls into a toilet bowl, there are three people with iPhones there to record the event. Yeah. If thousands of people on the day that the, that the towers, the Twin Towers came down, yeah. in this day and age, were out there demonstrating, you don't think one person would have taken a picture of it? That was a very different time. We are not, as Jeff Greenfield underscores, talking about just an occasional fib. The, you know, the Washington Post, when it does its fact checks, they found that roughly two-thirds of his statements were flatly factually false. The dilemma, the limit is, you can't, in a, in a newscast, say, Donald Trump, who has serially lied his way through the last... Can't do that, even if you thought that was factually true. And even if you could say something like that, media gatekeepers have lost a lot of their impact. Meet Adam Sharp. He's head of news, government, and elections for Twitter. Donald Trump has recognized that he can have a direct connection to millions of supporters without having to rely on any third-party infrastructure. It used to be a candidate would have to get booked on the evening news to reach millions of people with that soundbite they wanted to drive the agenda that day. Donald Trump picks up his phone, types a sentence, clicks send, and now millions of people have that message delivered directly to them. What happens next is far from a foregone conclusion. A recent CBS News New York Times poll indicates that staggering majorities consider both Trump and Clinton untrustworthy. Jan Myrdal was a delegate from North Dakota. You're an evangelical? Yes, I am. 
It doesn't bother you? This guy's been married three times? Yes, it does. Yeah. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. But we have, but, but it bothers me more for the future of my children with somebody. I know what I'm getting with Hillary. With Trump, we don't know yet. So I agree with you. And you know what? I'm a native of Norway. I'm a citizen now. And my brother called me the other day and he said, out of 300 million people in America, you have this buffoon and this criminal family dynasty. Can't you come up with somebody else? And I said, apparently not. So that's an honest answer. Hi, Ted. How are you? Nice to see you. When we come back, the object of our attention, a brief conversation with Donald Trump. We've just heard a lot about Donald Trump. Now it's time to hear from the nominee himself. Here again, senior contributor Ted Koppel. Nobody in recent memory has a more highly developed sense of public confidence than the freshly minted Republican nominee for president. Still, as I sat down with Donald Trump late last week, I couldn't help but wonder. Let me ask you a question I've wanted to ask you for months now. I have a sense that back on June 16th, what Donald Trump was thinking was, you know something, I might win a primary or two, I might win a caucus or two, but you know, the worst thing that's going to happen is the brand is going to be improved, I'll be better known, I'll be more famous than I am today, business is going to be in. You never thought you'd be sitting here on this day as the nominee of the Republican Party? It, it's such a great question and such an interesting question. And I think about it myself. I mean, you know, I think I must have, Ted, because I do like to win. And I believe that if I didn't think I was going to win, I wouldn't have done it. So somewhere deep down in the mind, I must have said, I'm going to win. I'll check the microphone. The afternoon of his acceptance speech, Trump did a walkthrough and a mic check. I love the media. Well, I was being sarcastic and saying how much we love the media. Now, the media has been very dishonest, but we put up with it. But I let people know about it. There's tremendous dishonesty in the media, but I let people know about it. It's been a mixed blessing for you. The media well, it's has a been, mixed, a, it's it been a blessing, and you wouldn't be where you are today I think without you're the right. media. Yeah, I think you're right. How did that work? And, and by the way, some are tremendously honest, but you have tremendous dishonesty in the media. Tremendous. I've never seen anything like it. More so in the last number of months, I think, than I've ever seen it. With that uh, being said, you have to power through it. Uh, and I do that, and it seems to be working out pretty well. But uh, I do like to expose it. When you talk about exposing the media, what the media is there to do, what we are supposed to do, is keep you honest. Yeah. And you've had your share of misstatements over the past few months. Well, I without, think that, without the media, who would know about that? Well, I think that I'm an honest person. I feel I'm an honest person, and I don't mind being criticized at all by the media, but I do want to, you know, I, I do want them to be straight about it. Trump seems to deal with unpleasant reality by ignoring or denying it. The ex-presidents, right. the leaders of sure. the party, the ones who ran for president are pretty much arrayed against you. Now, oh, I don't you, think now so. Now you have to, well, I mean... I don't the, think so. Look, the Bushes are, the McCains are, the... Ted, let me, let me explain are. something. Yeah. The people like me. Right. I got the most votes, almost 14 million votes, in the history of the Republican Party. We're talking about Dwight D. Eisenhower. We're talking about... Now you've got to convince the well, independents. The polls, the polls now are showing, yeah. Now you've got to but convince I'm way up the with, Democrats. But I'm way up with independents. How do you convince the doubters? How do you convince the people who are sitting out there, and there are a lot of people sitting out there saying, I can't believe 
that Donald J. Trump well, is the nominee. I my can't whole life, it. though, and you've you know covered me for a long time. We've known each other a long time. My whole life has been winning. I mean, I've won. Whether I did The Apprentice, went on television, same okay. question. You can't compare, I, I, you can't compare saying, anything you've done before. Tremendous success in business. Right. Tremendous success with, I go into television, I do a show, it's a big success. I write books, they're very successful. There's nothing, no, I agree nothing for like anybody, running for president of the United States. I agree, I agree. There's nothing like it. Uh, How do you convince those doubters? How do you convince the folks that you're going to have to, you're going to have to get those people in the middle? I think on November 8th, I think that's the way you convince them, to be honest with you. It's all about that. That's if the ultimate you, If you haven't convinced them before no, November right 8th, now you're I'm in trouble. Them to, right now, I'm up in many of the polls. What are you doing? What are you saying? I mean, you talked at one point. In fact, yeah. I heard you say it several times. Oh, I can be so presidential. It's true. I haven't seen it yet. I think I mean, you have. I think you well, have. I mean, I still see that flare of temper. I still see that Donald Trump, who likes to jab people in the ribs when he feels he has to, we're going to see more of that or less? I mean, you're going after Hillary. There's no question of that. Well, I mean, she's a competitor, just like uh, when I'm, you know, running the nation. If but is that it, happens, is it going to get nasty? We're going to compete with Hillary. Well, I mean, she's taken very nasty ads and all. I mean, it's not like me. It's sort of funny that you say I'm going after her. She spent 102 million dollars on negative ads, and you know, I'm, everyone says, "Oh, you're going after Hillary." She spent 102 million dollars on negative ads. I haven't literally bought an ad. I will. We have a lot of money. What Ted, is it that's going to be different about the Trump campaign now that you're in a general all, campaign? Ted, all I can do is talk about policy, which I'm very good at. All I can do is talk about the things we're going to do for our country, rebuild our depleted military, borders, uh, trade. Uh, Obamacare is a disaster. It's a total disaster. Our health care plan is a total disaster. How important are the debates going to be? I think they'll be very important. I always think they're less important than people think. but. You know, in the other debates, I was in 11 debates. Every poll had me winning every single debate. Every single poll had me winning every single debate. You know I mean, what, I look forward to the debates. You know debates. what William F. Buckley said? He said, never debate someone who is not a debater. Well, you're, you're, not, a, well, you're not a debater. Well be. I think I surprised a lot of people. But I enjoy the debates. I was, my biggest question when I got into this is what's going to happen with the debates? Because I've never debated professionally before. You know, I debate my whole life as a debate in a way. But, you know, to go on a stage and... I went on against people. That's all they do is debate. That's, you know, they're politicians. And I actually loved debating. I enjoyed it. One last question. I have this image of you sitting there in your jammies at night, doing your texting and your tweeting and your Facebook. Give me a visual image of when does Donald Trump text and tweet and all the rest Well, of I think there'll be very little of that if I win. I think it's, you know, it's a little bit different. But right now I'm in a very nasty contest with a person who's a very nasty person who, by the way, tweets and texts and, you know, spends, they have a tremendous effort. Well, I mean, is it you tweeting? Oftentimes. Are all those, are all those tweets yours? Me. No, it, but oftentimes it's me. I mean, you know, oftentimes it's me because I get out a message. Between Facebook and Twitter, I have over 20 million people, and that's a big audience. And it's also you and the media and well, everybody's it, watching. It allows so, you to circumvent It allows me to get across a point very quickly in seconds. I mean, there was never anything like that. And I have such a big base. It's such a big, you know, 20 million people. is That's a tremendous, more than that. It's going to be much more. I think I'm gaining probably 100,000 people every few days. And that gives me a big, big base in terms of a campaign. In terms of a presidency, I don't think I'd use it very much at all. All right, you've been kind to do this. I know you've got Thank a couple you. of things on your agenda. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Ted. Thanks.
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. A remarkable aircraft is winging its way across the Mideast this morning, bound for Abu Dhabi, completing a round-the-world flight. And as our David Pogue of Yahoo Tech explains, it's a light aircraft in more ways than one. Some achievements are considered impossible, right up until the moment somebody does them, like building a flying machine or walking on the moon. Or building an airplane powered only by the sun. This is the Solar Impulse. It's impossible mission to fly around the world without using a single drop of fuel. Not exactly nonstop and not without a hitch, but it's only one flight away from completing its journey. You are so different. You know, he's an engineer, I'm a medical doctor. And these are the two Swiss explorers who take turns in the pilot's seat. Andre Borschberg, the engineer, and Bertrand Picard, the visionary. Exploration is when you go into the unknown, you have no idea what's going to happen, and you try to use the doubt and the question marks to stimulate your creativity. And what I tell to the team almost every week is if it's easy, everybody else would have done it. And it's definitely not easy. A solar plane lives in a tiny mathematical sweet spot, limited by weight, solar panel area, and batteries. The wingspan is bigger than a 747's, but the plane weighs only about as much as a car and holds only one person. Everything is designed to be very light. It's taken this plane about a year and five months to circle the Earth. That's because it needs ideal weather and because it's not an especially fast plane. 55 miles an hour. This thing only goes as fast as a car? The goal is not how fast you go to the destination, is how you get to the destination. I've checked the plane, everything works. It's no surprise to find Bertrand Picard driving this project. He comes from a long line of famous adventurers. So famous, the creators of Star Trek named Captain Jean-Luc Picard after one of his relatives. Named after the twin brother of my grandfather. Really? Yeah, really. Oh, so that's not just a coincidence. No, no. It's the balloon that'll take the professor up after it's inflated. In 1931, his grandfather, Auguste Picard, was the first man to reach the Earth's stratosphere in a balloon. It's a brave thing this little man's doing, risking his life for the benefit of science. Jacques Picard climbs down a tube through the gasoline float and squeezes into the steel ball. His father, Jacques Picard, was the first man to reach the deepest point of the ocean in the Mariana Trench. The solar plane isn't even Bertrand's first record-breaking journey. He was also the first man ever to pilot a balloon nonstop around the world in 1999. It seems like the, for the balloon, it was pure adventure, exploration, pioneering. It seems like with Solar Impulse, there's, there's a message as well. This is more than just a stunt, right? It's not a stunt. All the challenges that Andre's engineering team had to build the plane, you see that it's exactly the challenges that our world has to be cleaner and more energy efficient and to solve all the problems of pollution. 
The flight from New York to Seville, Spain took three days. If you're going to spend that much time cooped up in a cockpit, you have to figure out how to sleep. You put the alarm clock for the 20 minutes. <laughs> and how to exercise. Oh. Yeah, I, I tried that on Delta once. They, they didn't like it. And how to do everything else. And you see here you have the, the bag for the bathroom. So you're basically sitting on a toilet for five days. You're sitting in the toilet. You can see it this way. <laughs> it took Picard, Borschberg, and their corporate sponsors over a decade to get the solar impulse off the ground. Tell me about your relationship. Do you fight? Sometimes we fight, but not very often. But we very often disagree, which is the source of our creativity. But I think we understand that we are, at the end, better off if we are together than we are if we are alone. For now, Solar Impulse is intended to be a very visible demonstration of how far clean technologies have come. But these guys think that all of this is only the beginning. I make the bet with you that in less than 10 years' time, we have electrical airplanes transporting 50 people for 1,000-mile uh, trips. And this will happen. You're willing to make that bet? Yeah, I make that right, bet. Absolutely. Ten sure. years right back here. Yes, yes. <laughs> I might just lose that bet. Picard is in the air this morning, flying the last leg of this impossible flight. The Wright brothers, they also had a single-seater flying very slowly in good weather. And 66 years later, there were two men on the moon. Still to come, actress Kristen Bell. I'm doing what works for me, and I don't really need to apologize to anybody because of that. So what to make of the convention just passed and the campaign just ahead? We've asked our friend and chief Washington correspondent emeritus, Bob Schieffer, to weigh in. The main thing we found out about Donald Trump at the Cleveland Convention is that he'll be running in the fall campaign as Donald Trump. I am your voice. As we learn from his acceptance speech, he won't be softening the edges, won't be cleaning up his act, won't be changing his style. We cannot afford to be so politically correct anymore. The emerging Trump strategy is focused on one thing and one thing alone, raising Hillary Clinton's negatives. Death, destruction, terrorism, and weakness. If he can convince people that she is worse than he is, then he wins. And it might work. I want my candidacy to unify our country. This may be why Trump has rejected the conventional wisdom America is a rising nation. that American elections are won by the most optimistic, uplifting candidates. Instead, he painted a dark view of American life, said Americans are living through one international humiliation after another, and blamed most of it on Hillary Clinton. America is far less safe, and the world is far less stable. He said he alone could fix it, but gave few details on how. He presided over a convention notable more for who didn't show up than who did. Honestly, he should have done it. 
and just Friday got in a post-convention row with primary rival Ted Cruz, telling him he not only didn't want his endorsement, but threatened to raise money to defeat him if he ran for re-election to the Senate. When Democrats gather in Philadelphia later this week, we'll get a better fix on what approach Hillary Clinton will take. Already, some are urging her to take the same approach as Trump, make it about him, not her. However that comes out, it won't be a pretty picture. This campaign is shaping up as one of the nastiest and dirtiest in American history, and we've had some bad ones. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.